Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm well, David. It's been a beautiful day. It's a little hot here, actually. Uh, I was thinking about putting on some gym shorts. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's a beautiful, beautiful spring day um, with a lot of interesting projects on, and, and I think we've got another uh, exciting uh new episode series starting uh, with this discussion. So all good. All good. How are you? Excellent. Oh, good. It's been a beautiful day here. I sat outside and read uh, Stephen Graham Jones' first novel, The Fast Red Road, which is great. It came out yeah, in 2000. Yeah, I like that and one the too. Man has, yeah, he's written, uh, it came out with FC2, which is just a great press in general um, for experimental fiction. And in the meantime, since 2000, I think he's released something like 175 books or something like that. Not really, but it's it's been <laughs> in the high tw- high 20s since then. So he's very prolific. Very, yes, he's a very prolific guy. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. So at the beginning of this episode, I suppose I will do my call to action right up front, and then we'll we'll chat a bit, and then we'll get into the meat of it. So thanks, everybody, for listening. First of all, this is No Country. It's a podcast that Chris and I put out every single week. Um, we have been really, really surprised and happy with how the podcast has grown, especially over the past few weeks. The numbers have leapt up. We were plateaued for a bit, and then we jumped back up. So whoever is out there recommending this podcast to your friends and putting it on your social media... Thank you so, so much. That's actually working. That's working very well. So please keep that up. For those of you who are new, welcome. Uh, we do ask that if you like the podcast, uh, it's totally free, but if you like the podcast to please leave a review on iTunes, which I will provide a link to. And if you are so inclined and have the time, um, you could also leave us a review on iTunes, which will make us more visible with their uh, with Apple's funny algorithms. Um, other than that, it's a pretty slow week. Otherwise, uh, Chris, you got anything you want to add to that? Uh, I've just heard some personal notes from uh, some of our listening friends. Uh, Unadi Slasha in South Africa, one of our favorite writers, um, certainly mine. He's making an important contribution to my Rutledge Press textbook. Uh, and David has also contributed an important piece for the fiction section. Uh, my friend Jim is uh, following us closely. I have an entomologist friend who uh, is just a fascinating person. Uh, quite happy to be called the bug man. Quite happy, proud. Uh, and is is really passing on some good comments and feedback. And then in some of my former students scattered around the world. So, uh, Seattle area, uh, another part of Africa, and the East Coast. So, we're getting uh, we're getting that sense of community going, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, no, most definitely. Yeah, we very much appreciate everybody who listens. Thanks so much for the feedback, for sending your emails to the butterfly in your mouth at gmail.com. The link to that will also be in the show notes. Don't forget that the show notes also contain clickable links that can take you down various fun rabbit holes. Sometimes a week or several weeks worth of uh, of rabbit holing, depending how many books you want to buy and how many holes you want to go down. But on that note, uh, yeah, it's very nice here. Uh, we're getting into spring. Um, 
my lawn, we've had some pretty good rains, so my lawn is uh, out of control. I got to get somebody to come over here and cut it. But recently, a friend of mine who's been helping me with my garden came over and helped me plant uh, carrots, cabbage, spinach, and uh, echinacea, and a few other nice, uh, Look at nice you. flowers there. Farmer yep, David. Yep. Oh, my. Correct. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to learn through osmosis because I have whatever the opposite of a green thumb is, but it's, uh, it's exciting. It's exciting. The, the we've rehabbed my backyard's uh, grass pretty well over the past, um, oh, I don't know, six months or so when I came here, um, it was, the grass was in pretty bad shape, but we've been, we've been working on it and got my little compost pile and yeah, it's just fun. It's exciting. Excellent. Excellent. But, um, yeah, on that note, Chris, uh, what did you want to talk about today? Okay, we uh, introduced our, in our last episode uh, a, a very general idea for uh, a series arc of, of a couple of episodes at least. Um, five aspects of, of progress, which uh, we called five myths of progress. And I think we should start rolling through them. But before we do that, progress is such an, you know, a big murky idea. And the fact that there are these five streams, there are probably many more. I'm just using that as an organizing principle. Maybe it would be helpful just to have a little bit of just open general discussion about what ideas come to mind when we hear the term progress and get people thinking uh, in terms of, of what, what comes to their minds first, I, I'll kick it off by saying that I mentioned last time that we think of progress usually in, in the sense of a noun, progress. Mm-hmm. We do not mm-hmm. think of it in the verb form of, of to progress. Okay, mm-hmm. And I think that's a very, very uh, telling point because there is something I, I, I think that we feel and we're told uh, that progress is kind of a motive force unto itself, however we look at it. And we're going to look at it in, in a range of different ways. But David, what, what's the first thing in, in just kind of general conversational terms? What f- pops into your mind first when you hear progress? Racial progress, racial equality, okay, civil rights. Yeah. That's just, that's that's my first, I mean... Uh, if I were to go on, I would say that it definitely starts with social, particularly racial, racial progress. I think that's been the big conversation since I got out of high school and Obama became uh, president. Uh, there was a lot of uh, talks about equality and equity and um, making sure that people in this country were, were treated fairly in a way. Uh, whether that's by their race or by their gender or by their sexual orientation. So progress for me always has a social connotation to it. Progressivism comes to my mind, mm-hmm. uh, particularly associated with the Democratic Party, uh, liberalism, and uh, leftism. So those are all, um, I wanted to give you the raw thoughts as they came in. Because, no, that's because I good. definitely think other things about it, but that's those are the first things that come that's to That's good. Okay, well, of the five myths, what David has just been talking about, we're calling social progress, and that will be a very important discussion point that we will get to, perhaps not this particular episode, 
uh, all of the things that David mentioned would would fit into that category, as would the uh, the American utopian community movement. You know, this is a huge part of of American history. The idea of reform and progressivism uh, is really goes back to the beginning of America. So although it's a very much a, a hot uh, topic today, it, it's an ongoing stream in, in American life. Um, so we, we will be moving toward that. But so why don't we then, with that in mind, start off with just a, a going back to our, our kind of mythic religious frameworks and just briefly uh, look at how the idea of progress permeates um, the major religions. Um, cool. We've got the myth of the eternal return, which is a book uh, mm-hmm. by Eliade, which I highly recommend. It kind of sets a framework for religious thinking worldwide, very much a worldwide cultural uh, critic and analyst. Um, good starting point. But think about the the Buddhists are always on the way, you know, on the way. Mm-hmm. Uh Muslims want to uh, unite with Allah. There's a movement. Uh, Christians are on their way to the, the new heaven and the new earth. You know, Christ said, uh, in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Um, then the Hindus uh, have, of course, a, a kind of amazingly colorful karmic reincarnation thing, which uh is uh, a complicated version of progress um, to the point mm-hmm. where one of my favorite Jack Kerouac lines, one of his best ones, I think, he said, I wish I were free of that slaving meat wheel and safe in heaven dead. You know, so we have this sense of of uh, of progress, which is always about a strange forward vector to uh, a new Jerusalem, a new this, a new that, a reuniting with the God figure. Um, but it's also about redemption and, and recovering from original sin or healing or some quite heavy moralistic hopes and dreams built into the idea of progress. And mm-hmm. I would just suggest that the other forms of progress that we're going to talk about pick up on a kind of religious sentiment, not religious in the four major religions that I've just mentioned, but religion in that deeper sense of faith and an irrational rationalism, if you like, um, Mm -hmm. that has some enormous rhetorical uh, promise and claim always in it and maybe very hard to live up to. So... What do you think about that as a starting point? I think that's a great starting point. I would like to go back to Eliade's myth of the eternal return because I'm I'm a bit so I'm a bit confused and it's possible that I don't quite understand the idea well enough to understand its relation to progressivism. So I understand it as a movement towards something but uh well, I guess it's in the title there, but it's also a return to a, a, a sort of past state when everything was was better. Am I off base? No, no, with no. That? You're 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 absolutely right, and I think you've you've put uh, your finger right on the paradox that that we think of progress perhaps as kind of an arrow 
but it really also is a kind of circular path, um, mm -hmm. which is, is very strange, but it seems to be inherent in, in the idea of progress. And I think that's why it's, it's interesting to start with the mythic uh, religious uh, anthropological sense of, of progress, because it does have that strange circularity to it and, uh, and may bring to mind uh, Winnie the Pooh and Piglet, you know, circling the thicket mm -hmm. after the woozle. Um, sure. It, it is a very you... odd thing of, of both movement forward and also some, uh, not just even a return, but a kind of um, rehabilitative arrival back at some mythic starting point of purity and pre, you know, fall, pre-fragmentation. Very, very interesting sort of problem at the heart of, of human culture, I think, that way. Because it, it's something we see in cultures all around the world, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It seems to me almost to be everybody wants to go back to a womb. So if you move up one level from that you get a sort of religion or mythology that revolves around going back to a cosmic womb, right? Becoming one with the mother, again, um, losing that, that sense of separation that you get as soon as, you're, as you slide out of the birth canal. Um, I'm thinking specifically about uh, Christianity, which seems to have a very interesting, uh, quite violent interpretation of the eternal return. Right, because in Revelation, it's all very much. Uh, there's a lot of uh, pretty gnarly demons that come out. It's a war, and God comes through and wipes out all of the wicked. But it's escaping me now. Perhaps you'll remember. At the end of it all, is there some sort of oneness that ends up there, or is it just? Or is because I recall it being more of a more of a kingdom instilled, right? Like a like a hundred thousand year Reich of some sort. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I mean, the New Testament, uh, if we think the Old Testament is crazy, the New Testament is filled with contradictions. And, and there isn't really a coherent uh, answer to that exactly. It's a little bit like a Hollywood blockbuster that has a few too many scriptwriters involved. Um, mm. And I think that is the, 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 the feeling that we get with Revelation. But there's, there's a, a tonal quality of, of both tremendous hope, which is kind of what the four Gospels are about, and where we have Christ, in a sense, speaking or being depicted, uh, speaking fairly directly, uh, as opposed to the fear, the brimstone, the apocalypse, you know, because you got to have that too. And mm -hmm. that may be another way, a handle that works across uh, all of the different forms of progress that we're going to discuss, is that it's a weird mix of hope, you know, keep your options open, as the financial services sector says, uh, or tomorrow is today, you know, you got to keep up. So it's, it's this kind of a balance. And when I worked in advertising, that was really what we did. It was all about manipulating either hope uh, or fear. You know, and, mm -hmm. and, and that's mm -hmm. the, the that's the mechanic there. And I think that 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 kind of is embedded in in all of um, all of the forms that we're going to look at, but certainly the religious side. And I think that you, you do pick up on some contradictions uh, of how uh, mm -hmm. 
how the New Testament promise uh, really resolves itself, if it does. Yeah, yeah. And it it seems to me that, because my family are all fundamentalist Christians, recently my father sent me um, a link about how CERN um, in, in, in Switzerland, I believe, um, opened up a portal to allow demons to come through. And it was this <laughs> YouTube video about, uh, it, it was using the book of revelation as it's, uh, as it's bibliography, basically as it's text to prove, um, that there were actually interdimensional demons coming, coming through all this. So that comes to my mind in a very sort of visceral way, especially when I think about the difference between uh, progress and and sort of, I guess its opponent would be conservatism in a way. Uh, my my family's interpretation of religion has always been, well, there's the word again, has always been one of of a return of a righting all of the wrongs, right? But somebody's going to do it with a big flaming sword. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it, it's better stage magic, better theater, you know. Um, it is. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, I don't think there's any, um, you know, that's why we have uh, such a, a fruitful and uh, crazy world of Christian theologies, because there isn't a simple solution to that, just in a kind of storytelling sense, however much belief you put in it. It's, uh, it's a real patchwork quilt of, of ideas, and, and there, there's some flames in the quilt, you know, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> It's a patchwork quilt and the quilt is on fire. Uh, yeah, no, I like that a lot. Okay, so I guess then perhaps it would be better to look at the two that you mentioned specifically, uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, and this idea of progress as a as a return. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for me? I, I think that the, 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 the Buddhist side is a little bit less of that return in a sense. I, it, it's this movement mm-hmm. towards... Uh, a greater state of enlightenment, a greater state of removal of oneself and one's needs from the world and rising to yeah. a higher state, you know, of, of, mm-hmm. of wisdom, you know, it's a wisdom philosophy more than it is a religion. Uh, Hinduism, as I understand, is really a complex, uh, I mean, I hate to, to make any sort of, um, unfortunate analogies, but it sometimes does remind me of a wonderfully uh, intricate video game, which is very hard to win. You know, you're moving through (laughs) these levels and uh, Uh it has been approached in certain ways like that. It's just rich with storytelling and uh, the idea of reincarnation, I think is, is fascinating. I mean, uh, the, the Platonists had that idea, it's, and the Pythagoreans. I mean, it's not uh, unique um, to uh, India or, or to the Hindu religion, but it's a fascinating thing, again, mixing that idea of kind of moving up in rank depending on mm-hmm. worth and how you've performed in one life um, or getting demoted. You know, there is that kind mm-hmm. of... Um, it's it's a little corporate that way. In, in, in it's a, a bit corporate, yeah, yeah, and it's also it's pro, it's progression on a on a generational millennial uh, scale, right? It's not the it's it's the the slow progression of one life 
it would almost seem that that progress from a Hindu standpoint is well, it's one step at a time. You know, we're not looking for any great changes here. You know, you just have to make sure that the next time you get incarnated, it says something uh, better than what you are based on your deeds in this life. Again, not not to grossly oversimplify, but, you know. No, but I think that you made a very important point about the sense of scale, which is a dramatic difference relative to some of the Christian sects. If you look at, say, the, the born again movement, I mean, the 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 promise there is you can have a direct revelation uh, of Christ yeah. in 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 one night. You know, it, there's it's a very different time frame, um, and one of the big discussions uh, which is is found in um, in the New Testament, um, the Book of James, is the difference between faith uh, revelation through faith or or redemption through works. You know, two very different sides of the Christian tradition. We've got, you know, the great mystics, you know, Meister Eckhart and a whole bunch of other really cool people who were kind of hermetic, mm-hmm. uh, magical wisdom people. And then we've got a very different sense of social work, of, of ministry in the community, of, you know, so there's a lot of, a lot of confusion there. But nonetheless, the time scale uh, is certainly very different than... Um, than what the Hindu, you know, focus is. So progress seen through a very different lens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that in 2021, uh, the ideas that we have of progress have been applied to religion in a very interesting way. This might this might not necessarily go anywhere, but somebody pointed it out to me, so I have to mention to it uh, to you on the air. Um, somebody informed me that there is now a uh, a secular witch community. Wow. Um, which I guess is, um, see, that to me picks up on putting this idea of progress that we have with regards to religion into a, into a framework where it, it doesn't make any sense, right? So it's almost like I, there are also, you know, secular Catholics, right? People who who don't necessarily believe in God but who enjoy the ritual and the the beauty of Catholic churches and the prayers and the you know the rosary and things like that, but but don't necessarily buy into the the more woo spiritual aspects of it. Sure. And it almost seems like religious uh, progression from a religious standpoint these days it, it almost seems like you know progression means actually taking the that uniting spirit out of the religion. Well, there are certainly some problems. I mean, I think the secular witch ideas is very interesting. I hadn't heard that before. I mean, what I think of when, you know, there's certainly a very strong and I think uh, coherent aspect to secular Jews. You know, I think that Mm -hmm. makes sense because we're talking about a cultural uh, side, a series of traditions that may or may not be, uh, you know, connected with... um, religious uh, beliefs, and certainly not with religious orthodoxy. It, it, it is, you know, positioning itself as opposed to that, and yet still within mm-hmm. a tradition. Um, I can understand that perfectly, because I, I've known a lot of, of people who would describe themselves as, as secular Jewish. Uh, the secular witch seems like a contradiction in terms, in a way, um, or trying to be too clever, trying to... Um, mm. I don't know. It makes me think of, you know, what they do in schools of there's no more Halloween. There's a harvest festival, 
you know? Yeah, and uh, right. I mean, most people wouldn't know harvest if they, you know, if, if they walked into a field, they have no idea where their food comes from. It's just, they've, they've secularized it in their view and they've taken out mm-hmm. everything that was cool about it, you know? Right, right. Yeah, those are definitely, that's why I feel, I, I just thought that that was such a uniquely funny um, little upwelling of of people who I think in a lot of cases are probably uh, very gun-shy about anything that looks religious or spiritual based on how they were brought up, right? The churches that they were brought up. And it's a very, it seems to me to be um, not uniquely American, but very American all the same, that you'd be like, you know, I love the the witchcraft and the summoning demons and, you know, the animism and all of that. But I just, I want to make sure that there's no, there's no God in there whatsoever. And it's like, well, that's like saying that you want to drive to Las Vegas with no gas. Yeah. Just, yeah. It's not going to work. I, I think we should put up one of uh, what we call trail markers uh, on that topic, because I think there are many, many things that will uncover and that listeners may may have to mind where there is almost a kind of oxymoronic quality to them. They, they've changed shape so much. They, they really don't make sense. And yet the reason why they've changed shape is, is, is very clear. And it's it kind of is in that category of euphemism. Uh, it's trying not to offend anyone. It's trying to, to water everything down. It, um, hmm. We have a lot of that in our, uh, in, in our society today. It's um, one of the expressions I, I use with my students is meat without the slaughter. You know, we always want to bifurcate mm-hmm. cause and effect if we feel a little bit squeamish about, you know, where something yeah. comes from or what, what's its real background. And we, we end up getting trapped in a world of euphemism and, uh, you know, doublespeak, which I think is uh, very confusing for, for kids and, and young people growing up. I think that it becomes, you know, you start to kind of have that double-mindedness, which we talked about in our doppelganger series. That has a lot to do with where it comes from. You know, it's, it is doublespeak. Mm-hmm. It's a weird quarantined approach to something, uh, which sort of sanitizes it right out of any meaning, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I totally agree with that. And I think that hopefully with some future episodes, maybe we can, we can help a little bit uh, with the listeners to, to sort of maybe understand why at least I, and I think you as well, think that it's important to get outside of the aesthetic trappings of a religion and kind of return to a actual um, spiritual feeling that you get when you're involved in a religion. But so back to the progress, uh, the cultural progress of, of, of religion, because I feel like I, I took us off that, that path a little bit. So it's, involved very specifically with the myth of the eternal return in your reading of it. So what do you think, um, what do you think the value of that is to, to a culture, to capital C culture? I think that, that if you look at it in a functionalist sense, and I'm not recommending that approach, but I think it's sometimes handy to pick up that lens and look at something um, that what it offers is some sort of, of going back to our idea that culture is, is about managing change. I think it's about bridging that, that sense of uh, 
moving and changing and adapting, but not losing tradition, not losing cultural order and cohesion. I think that was that's the goal of it. It certainly doesn't always deliver that. And we know that there is tremendous strife and struggle between religious points of view. Um, but there are between, you know, non-religious points of view for that matter. But I think it speaks to contradictory, deep structure values that, that are kind of inherent in language and languages around the world. Uh, the idea of language, in other words, that change is a very, very peculiar thing. We both want it and we're afraid of it. You know, think about that. We all feel that way in a very personal ways. Sure, there are some, there are tons of things we would love to change. But, you know, do you want your health to take a sudden change? Well, perhaps not. You know, there's, there's, there's that mix of hope and fear that we started the, uh, the show with. And I, I think that that is the, the total underlying takeout of the religious mythic belief. It's, it's both a wanting to return to that womb, wanting to return to a place of spiritual unity, wanting to meet the old ones, <clears throat> the original ones, wanting to meet the Godhead in whatever way. And yet it's also um, some hoping for you know, the future, that that will have to be done in time, and that we need to you know, keep on that path. You know, the path, the flock, there's a lot of that kind of language um, in the major religions of, of, I mean, I think the flock is very interesting, you know, keeping the flock, you know, going in a direction, holding people together, but keeping an individual on a path of salvation and redemption. So uh, I think that's kind of where the, the, the mythic religious thing gets us to it's a it's maybe a, the starting point platform to to look at the other mythic structures and the next one we, we were talking about is the biological um which um is so important uh it's um it ties back into some early episode work we did looking at uh at darwin and his personal evolution from the uh, writing The Voyage of the Beagle as a young man in his 30s, about your age, uh, to, of course, the much later in life and much more famous work uh, on the origin of species. Um, but to, to our link to the religious frame was a belief uh, model that predated the evolutionists uh, called The Great Chain of Being. A.O. Lovejoy has a beautiful book recounting that. But it, it's a hierarchical view of the world that starts with a god from the Christian point of view. It has this huge network and empire of angels, seraphim and cherubim, you know, all these, all these different... And then, and then we get to humanity. And then beneath that is this huge structure of, of all other creatures. Well, beginning with Lamarck, uh, who's kind of not given the, the credit that he should because of Darwin and Wallace, uh, at least Lamarck turned that whole ladder upside down so that we begin to see humanity at the peak, at the top of a, a chain, a ladder moving up from unicellular organisms. And uh, both Darwin and Wallace sort of hammered that home, even though Darwin is the, uh, the, the better known there, which is very unfortunate because 
Wallace is a great, he was a great scientist. He was a really cool person. He's kind of like the, the mellow old hippie. Uh, and Darwin yeah, is the stern, yeah. cranky, you know, uh, clergyman who didn't join the clergy, uh, who was sick most of his life. And Wallace is sort of energetic and vital and believing mystical things and having all sorts of strange ideas. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you're a big sir kind of person, Wallace is, is, uh, is a fun person to check out. But Darwin mm-hmm. is the one who, you know, really... Uh, kind of formalized the idea. And here, I think, is the real problem. Um, it completely broke the continuum with all of the lower animal forms. It really brought that to mind. Uh, and there, there's a, a spiritual problem there with that. Uh, for Darwin, there was a total elimination of the need for God. That was very much a personal directive of his. He, he, he really wanted to write any god out of the scenario. So we have the blind watchmaker of, of natural selection. People may know Richard Dawkins' book, uh, The Blind Watchmaker. Darwin is perhaps, uh, uh, Dawkins is perhaps our most rabid uh, Darwinist, along with um, Daniel Dennett. Um, but we paid a great price for that, you know. Think of that that Bob Dylan song, which I kind of like. You know, man gave name to all the animals in the beginning, long time ago. And right there, we have one of the great problems of modernity. We're divided from every other creature. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that really the heart of, of both our well, our spiritual crisis, if we if you believe in that? Certainly, the the cultural psychological crisis and our very physical environmental crisis, don't you think? Oh, a hundred percent. And the major problem with the whole system is has to do with the prog with the progression of of biological growth, right? Because as I see it, there's nothing sort of that that proves that humans is uh, humans are rather the the pinnacle of this progression you know what i mean so this separation from other species and this disconnectedness from both god and animals is a result of believing that everything that has progressed biologically progressed up to us when I'm not sure if that's how that works at all. It seems to me to be much more rhizomatic. There are offshoots. I'm not 100% convinced that we're better uh, than beavers or monitor lizards. I'm, I'm just, I mean, I, I know that we can do cool stuff like make iPhones, but other than that, I'm not, I'm not 100% convinced on that. So I think that those two things are inextricably intertwined, right? The separation comes from the assumption that this is, this is the goal. This is what you want to be like. Right. Well, I, okay. There are a couple of really important things to, to unpack there in what you just said. It's not that there hasn't been some brilliant and very, very specific, almost micro-specific work done in evolutionary biology. I would certainly not say that. There are some very interesting things happening. But there are an enormous number of gaps in terms of our understanding, particularly when it comes to the rise of, of so-called humans. Human culture, language, language remains deeply mysterious, geographical dispersions. But here in this core 
scientific theory. You know, one of maybe perhaps two or three really central uh, creation myths of, of the modern era cast as scientific theories. As David said, I think we have one of the most radical rhetorical claims that you could possibly make um, that humanity is somehow this, this pinnacle. Uh, and of course, it leaves then the question, well, what comes after humanity? And uh, we might get to that in the next phase when we look at the, the technological progress. But notice how a, a theory that pointedly tries to remove God and religion from scientific explanation returns very much to a core religious principle of the, mm-hmm. the, the privileged nature of, of humanity, human specialism, mm. oh, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we didn't get rid of that one, did we, you know? We certainly did not, yeah. <laughs> That's a bridge too far right there. Yeah, no, it does, it does seem to me that um, you find this with a lot of uh, science, actually, this sort of doubling back to a kind of religion that they thought that they left behind, right? And the, the primacy of human beings in particular, which is, oddly enough, I think much... Uh, I prefer the articulation of somebody like Lynn Margulis, right? Right. Who did a lot of work with uh, symbiosis and kind of, you know, co-development and uh, the idea that that's that it's it's basically uh, putting the lie to the idea of natural selection as this predatory, only the strongest survive uh, myth that I think is borne out by reality. Right. Have you ever seen a quokka? No. They're these fuzzy little wombat looking things that evolved on an island where they had no natural predators and they're just they look like oh i have i i do know what you're talking about yeah Yeah, maybe it's quokka i'm not sure but um yeah it is yeah yeah um but uh so you look at those things and it's like well if you know if it was all survival of the fittest i mean i know that they don't have any natural enemies but it it looks like a you know these guys would have a a tough time with a, a strong tropical storm you know um but that what margulis puts forward is that you know, species actually kind of kind of help each other. That just that it's a bit more complicated uh, than this solid red line from, you know, single celled organisms to you know, Albert Einstein. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 a little bit more dense and interesting and and peopled than that. And it's more dimensionalized. I mean, it's not a, an axis; it's a matrix, you know, and it's a multi-dimensional right. sort of of matrix. Um, and there is a lot more, um, you know, to do with cooperation and collaboration and in the symbiotic, you know, relationships. And it's interesting about you know that line: survival of the fittest. Uh, oftentimes, people think that came from the movement called social Darwinism and was really a response to Darwin's work and an extension of it into the sociological, the economic, uh, the, the cultural struggle between classes and people. And, and that is true. But one of the things I found interesting when I went back to reading The Voyage of the Beagle is that he explored that idea very clearly at the start. He really did. He he explored it speculatively and didn't you know lay down any hard track, but he was very very much looking at that. Um, we did mention last time, David, the, the idea of the Red Queen hypothesis, 
um, which yeah. is a reference to the Red Queen in uh, Lewis Carroll's uh, Alice in Wonderland, who has to run twice as fast to remain in the same spot. I really encourage people to have a quick Google on the Red Queen hypothesis. It is a complicated uh, theory when it's actually used in its proper scientific context of evolutionary biology and extinctions within paleontology. But here is a summary that I think is interesting. It's a term coined by a scientist named Leigh Van Valen. And um, it has been described as an evolutionary arms race where predator and prey constantly must evolve to achieve an uneasy balance. And so, I mean, that just sounds very tense, doesn't it? It really, you know? It uh, does, yeah. Doesn't sound it, like fun. Talk about, I mean, the balance between hope and total fear, you know? It, 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 there's a tonal quality to that that I think is really um, very haunting. And it ties back to that haunted sense of, of modernity. Um, and we see it, you know, in so many ways on, on you know, the business and capitalism front of a kind of nasty sense of competition, not a healthy sense of competition, yeah. something under zero sum. zero sum. That's exactly it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do you, what do you think a more helpful view of biological progress would look like culturally? You know, I mean, I think, I think you did a really good job with outlining it religiously, but if, if, if the biological angle is, is one element of, of culture, and it's sort of haunted by the specter of progress, what, what's the alternative to that? Okay, well, I think that there is a very clear one, and, and it ties back very uh, directly to our discussion of indigenous cultures. When we were talking mm -hmm. about the, the difference in mindset and worldview, one of them would be, would be clearly that, that the indigenous view in general terms, again, a little bit of oversimplification, but I think there's a lot of evidence for it, is much more based on this continuum with all of the other creatures and, and the earth itself. Whereas we are very divided for unclear reasons, alienated, in fact, from other life forms and the planet itself in many ways. Uh, we think of culture as something we make. Indigenous people would think of culture as habitat, directly connected to other creatures the gods and spirits and demons of their stories and, and religious beliefs are animals. You know, there's a, there's a grounding in, and they're not cartoon animals. You know, they're serious. They're like the giant bird creatures I spoke about in uh, one of the New Guinea initiation rites. So I think there is that return to a belief in seeing ourselves connected with the creatures around us. And I think we can do that in a backyard science way. I think we can notice bird life. I think we can not overprivilege animals, domestic animals like dogs and cats and not look at other creatures. Um, I mean, my, the university I've been affiliated with uh, has recently canceled all their environmental studies programs, which I just can't believe. I just can't get my, well, cut, cut funding, you know, um, Oh, in the budget, okay. yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. So I think oh, that if we're going to survive as a species and not destroy thousands and thousands upon other species, we are going to have to switch back to that indigenous mindset 
of culture as habitat and a continuum of life forms, not a hierarchy with humans hopelessly separate. Yeah, with, with basically getting rid of that that Red Queen hypothesis, right? Of everybody sort of in competition for resources. Um, if those are the rules of the game, humans win every time. But obviously, at what cost? Winning is a very fraught word in that in that case because you know you kill everything else and you kill the planet and then nobody's happy because um everybody dies uh but, but no i think that the word that you use there is one that i want to return to throughout this discussion of culture which is continuum so when you said that it broke my head open uh because i was looking for that word very specifically i've been thinking about progress since you mentioned it last week as the topic for uh, for this particular episode and probably the several next episodes that we do as well. And I always think of progress as a sort of big red line on a graph that goes up and up and up. It's the idea of, you know, 11% progress uh, in, in corporate settings every year, year over year. Um, I, rem- I remember very specifically, there are moments in my life where things that I enjoyed got worse as directly as a result of this kind of uh, spike that continues to try to reach towards the heavens. So Facebook is a good example, which I joined in 2006 or seven and used to have a really good time with because I could post my thoughts on there. I could see my friends' thoughts in the order that they wrote them down. Um, and then I remember very specifically at the end of 2013 or maybe the beginning of 2014, those timelines began to be uh, algorithmically displayed to me based on what Facebook thought I wanted to see. And it was all based on this, um, you know, ever tightening vice grip to usher me into these little categories so that I would be easy to advertise to, Um, because, because Facebook had to progress. It had to get that 11%. It had to give return to its board of directors and its investors, right? Um, or else what's the point in having a company? And that gets a little bit into sort of corporate, corporatism, capitalism. So I can table that for right now. But the idea of the continuum is so much more interesting because if you think of uh, a spike that goes up and up and up and up, it's Sisyphean in nature, right? Yep. It's a boulder that has to constantly be rolled up and up and up. But if you think of it in uh, more terms of peaks and valleys, and the valleys not being negative, not being bad, sometimes a valley is pretty good. If there's a valley on a graph of COVID cases, that's a good thing. It's it's good that we don't have a spike, right? Right. Um, and it also reminds me more of an EKG meter. That looks more like what people's life force looks like when translated into little electrical peaks and valleys. But continuum is even more interesting because continuum goes right off the graph. Like you said, it becomes a matrix. You have to add an extra axis or even more than that, right? Like you have to have this fully three-dimensional tentacled movement in order to get around on something like that. And that is the metaphorical leap that I think I'm in the process of making and I'm in the process of trying to figure out how to uh, better explain to people because I I think that's just so important for both where we are now and uh, where we, as being stuck in four-dimensional time, really need to go. Does that that all make sense? It does, absolutely. And I think that that however we visualize 
uh, the continuum in, in dimensionalized terms, it, it instantly frees us of one of the most paralyzing aspects of progress on an axis basis, which is, that's mechanistic, and that works in a linear fashion. Linear and progressive is kind of synonymous in a, in a way. But if we break to a more dimensionalized sense of continuum between life forms and the planet itself, then we have the possibility of an organic understanding. And mm-hmm. that's not easy, you know, to get one's head around. There are aspects of, of scientific exploration that have worked very, very effectively because they are mechanistic and because they're also models, they're approximations that are susceptible to certain forms of mathematics. So those have been very important, and no one wants to entirely uh, just throw those out. We're dependent on them. But on the other hand, we, we can't worship that at that altar, um, particularly if we don't call it an altar. And we need to reinstate some of that organic sense of totality, holism, unity, rather than constant competition, division, you know? That, that that's going to kill us. Yeah. Are you either, are you moving forwards or are you moving backwards? Well, neither. And then to that, somebody might say, so, okay, so you're just sitting in place. And you would say to that, no, not exactly. Not really that either. Right. I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of moving. I'm playing. I'm, I'm off the graph. I'm off the reservation, so to speak. Well, what you just is so, so much the Western view. I mean, and and it was beautifully said in in very quantitative colloquial terms. Are you moving forward? Are you moving backward? Or are you just, you know, sitting there with your thumb up your butt? You know, those aren't great options. You know, those those are already prejudiced in terms of the, the kind of view that you want. I mean, I think most people say, well, I'm moving forward, you know, um, <laughs> you know, it, uh, because the other two options are already rhetorically biased, you know, in such a way. Mm-hmm. Um, this gets back to when you know, someone else we talked about of George Lakoff and, and Gregory Bateson of, of their analysis of how language uh, in very simple ways slants thinking without us even knowing it. You know, because mm. it, it, it it's like a good con artist. It makes us think there are choices and yet there really aren't. We're going to go forward. We're not going to go backward or just be standing still doing nothing. Right. You know, right. Right. So there are three options yeah. there, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, moving forward always makes me think of moving through something like a war with two sides. Yeah. And, you know, it's uh, you know, it's a line of soldiers blocking something and we have to move forward. We have to progress through. We have to, you know, crawl through the mud over corpses, right? To get to the to the next thing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that doesn't seem very, very, very fun, right? And then moving back also has a negative connotation in my mind because moving back feels I mean, the the, the past, uh, particularly in America, is very fraught with a lot of things that a lot of people would not want to move back to and with good reason, you know? So I think that, um, yeah, I think that meditating on this idea is something that I'm going to do probably for the next week or so. And, uh, 
and think about what this what this other thing really is. I think we've we've started uh, down a good path here. We, we're moving forward down a path. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, uh, yes. But yeah, right. Um, but do you th- I think we have time. Do you want to do one more aspect of progression before we wrap it up? I think we should certainly introduce uh, technological progress because I think it's yeah. it's such an important one. And for many people, it's, it is the first thing they think about. Um, and I think that we have a kind of binary, uh, certainly in my students, I, I do a whole class on this about uh, some people, uh, as you started off, think about progress in social progress terms, and other people think very much in terms of engineering and innovations, you know, new new gadgets. Um, so mm-hmm. just to, if, we, if we need to revisit th- this or continue the inquiry next time, I think it's worth doing because it re- there really is a, a lot to it. But... Um, To get people started, uh, Edward T. Hall is an anthropologist who I think very highly of. He was a contemporary and colleague of Marshall McLuhan and Buckminster Fuller, one of those innovative uh, 60s social scientist anthropologists. And he did some of the first really good contemporary work on on cultural anthropology from a, a business point of view. Uh, some very interesting stuff, but he looked at how people define uh, their cultural milieu in terms of physical space, uh, personal space, tuning into each other physically, and uh, a very important idea of, of how different cultures structure time. David earlier mentioned that, and that's kind of something that we may pick up uh, from time to time because it is really important to look at that. But his idea... Um, about technology. He called them extensions, or what Freud would say, sort of prosthetic devices, how we build things, tools to help us reach farther, to see better, to do more things. And the idea was that at some point, and I think it's kind of the, it's a little bit, different people have different ideas when this happened, but the modern age certainly could be a defined in part as a moment when these extensions began to take on a life of their own. Uh, As Thoreau said, we've become the tools of our tools. And Hmm. think about how many people, and I'm often one of them, although I try to break this idea down, who really feel like technological progress is uh, a, a vector and motive force unto itself, you know? It's not sentient. We don't have to get mystical about it, but it seems to be a kind of parallel to the natural selection biologically. And it seems to be running its own agenda on its own time frame. And many people, I think, feel um, very disempowered and disenfranchised, even as they're consuming it and, and, you know, drooling over the latest gadgets. So that, I think, is the conflict. You know, and... There is a tradition of modern philosophers who would put technology as a sort of elder god. Um, the accelerationists come to mind, yeah. particularly uh, Nick Land uh, was uh, and is. That's a good reference. Yeah, yes, yeah, of the CCRU uh, was very much of this ilk. He wrote these great works of what he called uh, theory fiction. Um, 
Reza Negrastani, who wrote Cyclonopedia, is another one of these. He, Cyclonopedia is this amazing book that I will recommend to anybody who will listen to me that posits um, oil as being a hyperstitional god. So a hyperstition is essentially an idea that becomes so prominent that it in fact takes on a life of its own and becomes a something with um with motive right something with a with a drive yeah. like a creature and uh so nick land in particular his particular brand of accelerationism which is put simply the idea that we should accelerate technological progress um at the expense of human well-being and life uh, to reach some sort of singularity, uh, or to or to actually um, get to a societal collapse, where the robots could then take over, um, somebody like Land uh, does think, uh, or has at least posited that there is a sort of Lovecraftian God in the future that we'll call technology with a capital T that has reached its tendrils back through time and is pulling us uh kicking and screaming towards itself right and I love so this. it's this idea yeah so it's this idea of of um of progress as a kind of inevitability and so their prescription for that is to uh to immunitize the eschaton to use a david foster wallace term right which basically means to to make uh, to make the end of the world happen quickly, right? So what they would say, uh, and this is, this is putting it crudely, is uh, don't worry about littering, you know, litter more. Um, don't, uh, you know, spend more time on the internet. Uh, make uh, racial and social divisions happen faster. You know, increase terrorism. Anything that moves us quicker and quicker to a complete collapse, you know, get into your get into your gas-guzzling car and just leave it on. For no for no other reason right just to get closer to this uh this being being able to fully manifest itself well you know the fascinating thing about this is we are now talking about the world of technology and engineering innovations uh you know kinds of scientists certainly engineers and technologists and yet the terms in the frame is really profoundly religious We've got gods, yeah. we've got uh, a kind of millenarian, to go back to our cargo cult episodes. That's exactly what the millenarian religious position is. And, I mean, there are many, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist movement, the Jehovah's Witnesses, it, you know, this sense of a kind of a apocalypse, if you like. Um, but I think it's fascinating that as we started off, the you know, we said that, that religion as a, as a kind of frame and a, a way of looking at the world permeates all of these other forms of progress. And it permeates the most mechanical uh, one of all, technology, computerization, the digital revolution, robots, you know, this whole mm -hmm. thing circles back as it's the, it's an, it's a return, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, Ray Kurzweil, who is the pioneer of the idea of the singularity, between you, me, and whoever's listening, um, he gives off a bit of a cult leader vibe, doesn't he? 
Well, I, I think he does. Absolutely. One of our, our, our listeners is, is kind of a devoted fan. And I, I think that certainly he's a, he's a very, very bright man. He currently is the head of technology for Google. Some of his books are interesting, but he is a, a very adamant futurist who takes, you know, thousands of vitamins a day, wants to be immortal, uh, and doesn't really, in my view, talk about how the benefits of technology can be equitably shared around the world mm -hmm. and certainly mm -hmm. doesn't acknowledge some of the things that are lost. Um, yeah. On that note, this is, this is something that's a little bit of a tinge, but it, it might be an interesting starting point to carry on this discussion. You know, okay. one of the things that happens with this relentless surge of progress across these various mythic structures is that language dramatically changes. I've just been doing some research into the sheer astonishing amount of language in English that relates to sailing and nautical maritime practice. And many people would have no idea anymore, none, because all of that's been eclipsed by new technology, new modes of transportation. And I think that this is one aspect of the alienation problem of modernity is as this arrow, this driving locomotive of progress surges forward, we, our language becomes more and more mysterious to us, more fossilized. You know, hmm. and we, hmm. we don't even see the fossil record. You know, it just becomes like, I mean, who would know that by and large, that pat phrase, that, that's, a, that's a nautical phrase. That's one of thousands, oh. thousands and thousands. And I mean, think about only a little while ago, so many people had horseback, horse riding, carriage skills. You know, mm -hmm. now that's mm -hmm. for rich people or, you know, a few people on the land. You know, no idea yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. And on it goes. So, uh, well, there's so much more to say about the link between technology and the, the two other promises of progress, the cultural and the social. And if those are competing in a kind of red queen way, and I have a strong view they are, uh, some people would insist that, that technology progress is, is in the service of these other forms of, of more social humanitarian ideas. Uh, I, 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 I'll just flag it. I, I'm strongly in disagreement with that. But I think that yeah, could be too. the starting point um, for our, our next episode. And we could pick up, too, on, I think um, you've said some funny things about uh, the pop culture side of, of, yeah. of getting older and keeping up with the yeah. changes, keeping up with the Joneses. What a great expression that was in terms of marketing. And there's, so there's, mm -hmm. I think, good ways to get into more of a neighborhood flavor with uh, changes and adaptations that are really forced upon all of us as our starting point uh, for, for next, next show. What do you think? Yeah. That sounds perfect to me. I think that this we covered a lot of ground in this episode, but we also delved pretty deep. I will have to think about a lot of the stuff that we've said and listen back to the episode. But I'm excited to get into particularly the cultural and social elements of progress because I feel like 
those are where my strongest opinions lie. So that will be a very juicy episode, I think. Yeah, I think it's something that we can all relate to. But I think we did need to do a little bit of groundwork of where this comes from. Uh, and to, to also connect back to a couple of the major themes and shows that we've done before. So with that yeah. idea in mind, there's a good groundwork to, to start off at a very neighborhood personal roof line level uh, about progress in cultural and social terms for next show. Yeah. Well, it was important to start where we did because my contention is that it all, it all goes back to the religious at, at the end of it. Um, which I guess we'll get more into next time. Chris, is there anything you'd like to to part with before we say goodbye? Uh, no, just thanks very much for people listening. Uh, I know that we've touched on a few things uh, that are of special interest to particular listeners. I mentioned Diane Karajanakis last time, who has done graduate work on the whole question of, of, of human centrism or anthropocentrism relative to uh, a more connected view of animals or, or what we've called the continuum. I think that's a, an idea that many, many people share. Uh, we haven't finished with that topic. There are many ways to, to look at that. Um, so we'll be, we'll be pursuing that from different angles in the future because I know some people are very interested in it, and we all must be. I agree. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Take care. Bye. Bye.